The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. We're in the middle of, uh, my name is Randy, by the way, if you don't know me. Um, we're in the middle of uh, a series on uh, 1 Corinthians. And the reason that we've been doing a series on 1 Corinthians is because you know, the Apostle Paul was a church planter. And we're a church plant. We're a little baby church plant, as you can tell. Um, and like any church plant, week to week, it's kind of crazy. Like, I don't know where these people are, but uh, they're not here. And uh, this is always kind of week to week. It's, it's always kind of weird. Like, you guys had to sit in the front row last week. That's a big deal. The Cassies were front row. And uh, now they're back on the third row because things are open back up for them. But um, the reason we're going through First Corinthians is because uh, the church of Corinth was a church plant by the apostle Paul and it was a, it was a really cool plant he came in, it was a big bustling metro city a fast growing city be sort of like, you know, I don't know um, sort of a they, they describe it as sort of you take New York and Las Vegas and LA and kind of mix it all together, it was a super fast growing, a lot of crazy stuff going on, it's sort of like almost kind of wild wild west out there just whatever goes was going on and Paul came in and he planted this church and the church took off and Paul stayed there for a while with them and then he left and now it's about three years later and Paul's gotten reports about some kind of crazy things going on in the church of Corinth and the reason we call the series Pretty Ugly Bride is because Paul, this is a, a, it is a church, it is a church plant. He starts off the book by saying to the, to the saints, to those who are sanctified, the saints together and every, who, uh, along with the, those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, grace and peace. And so Paul opens up saying, you guys are believers, but then like, after a, a little bit, he just kind of lights into all this kind of, to him, crazy things that are going on in the church of Corinth. And we're going through this just to kind of remind ourselves and lay the groundwork as a baby church plant that God's church is a, it is the bride of Christ. It is a beautiful thing. It's what he died for, by the way. Jesus died for you. If you're a believer in Christ today, he died for you. If you're not a believer in Christ today, he died for your sins. But he didn't just die just for you. He died to win a bride to himself. He died to, to make a church, to make a people, not just to make you. It wasn't just you that he thought about. It was you, but it was all of us together that he was thinking about. And it's a beautiful thing. And we're covered, our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes, it makes us beautiful before God, where before we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But also, if you've been around church for very long, like you've kind of figured out that this thing can get messy. Anybody ever, don't raise your hand, anybody ever do, been through a church split before? Anybody ever had an argument in church before? Anybody ever watched a deacon's meeting in a Baptist church before? Not, not, not just knocking the Baptist, you've been a part of a, a, a session meeting in a Presbyterian church. You've been a part of a congregational meeting where they're talking about the budget for next year or what new carpet is going to go down or have yeah, been a part of a conversation on whether you should have drums or not or whether the guitar should be electric or not or whether you should sing hymns or whether you shouldn't or all kinds of crazy things. The church can be something ugly. It can be, it can be disappointing sometimes. And that's like just our kind of legacy is the part of being a part of the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing, but it's also an ugly thing at the same time. And that's why Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. We're going to be going through this for a while. We have uh, this week and then two more weeks. And then we're going to take a pause in the book of 
Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and uh, it's going to be, it's already here. It's going to be a holiday season. Can you imagine that? And so we're going to take a pause for four weeks. We're going to do Advent. Uh, we're going to celebrate uh, Jesus coming, and we're going to, our series title for that is going to be The Fullness of Time. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really cool. I'm saying that in faith. It's going to be really awesome. And then uh, after we have Advent, we're going into the new year, where we'll be kicking back into uh, Corinthians. But we're going to take sort of a series within the series because we're going to get to some fun stuff. Chapter 7. You think we've been going through some fun stuff already? It really gets fun and exciting in Chapter 7. And we're going to be taking a short little series that we're going to call Sex, Singleness, and Marriage. So... Hey, that should be awesome, huh? Invite your friends and get all excited and make plans not to miss anything in January. Sex, singleness, and marriage. There are a few of us hanging out at uh, Doxa, what I call Doxa World Headquarters uh, on Friday. And I, I call it that because out of sheer irony because uh, Doxa World Headquarters is our little office. It's the only thing that we actually have. Like, obviously, we kind of come in and set up and tear down, and we park the trailer at a storage parking parking space, and we put all the, the like, electronic stuff into a climate-controlled storage space. We don't really have anything, except now, we just got, like, at the beginning of the summer, the spring, we got a uh, an office. It's like a little place that we can call ours. It's basically a walk-in closet. If anybody's been there, is that, is that yes, yeah, so it's basically a walk-in closet that, that John helped us find, which is awesome. The rent is great, and our uh, landlords don't mind that on um, Wednesdays and Fridays it tends to get loud in there, and think, nobody's usually in there uh, when the band comes in. They'll, they'll practice there a lot of times on uh, Tuesday nights, is that correct? And uh, it doesn't really, it's not big enough to hold the whole band. I mean, we don't have a big band. It's not big enough to hold the band. And so like John or somebody is kind of relegated to out in the in the hallway and they're trying to participate from out in the hallway. But we were hanging out and it basically looks like a dorm room because it's like us guys that are hanging there most of the time. So it's like two, like, you know what, you, like a dorm room would be like uh, kind of base furniture. You have a couch that's too big for the room. You have uh, two desks and then always a TV or a monitor that's too big and that's Jamin's. Jamin brought in this big old monitor in this tiny little room. When he cuts it on, it sort of lights up the whole room. And, and, and we also have a mini fridge because that's what you have to have in a dorm room. And then like random stuff stuck up on the wall. So it's sort of like that. And we were hanging out there the other day and we were talking and probably not some of our, Dale tells us when we go there, be productive. And this is probably not one of our most productive times. We're having a conversation uh, Revolving around probably foot, actually it was football, the NFL, and somebody came into the room, and, and I think it might have been Jamin, and they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" and uh, something like this. And, and Josh, the intern, who's back at the back, Josh, the intern, speaks up and says, "Oh, I forget what he said. It was really funny and quippy. I wish I could remember because it would make you guys laugh." But he basically said he kind of put it all in perspective because we've been we'd spent like thirty. 45 minutes or so talking about the NFL and and he said hey it's just like Burton and Randy and I dropping our NFL knowledge and which is kind of ironic in that none of us are you know what we call like super duper athletic and none of us have I don't either I don't think played or coached football past like a high school level I was like never like the fact that it's just funny that Josh, who's sort of a nerdy geek, and me, who's sort of a nerdy geek, and Burton, who is somewhat athletic and heads up the rec department, would be sitting there like talking about what the coaches should have done <laughs> and who the best players are and what they, sh- what they should be doing going forward. 
Because, but aren't we all kind of like that? Like, we're ready to drop our knowledge on anybody who asks. Like, we all have an opinion on stuff. We're all sort of like amateur, closets, like couch potato philosophers and coaches and life coaches. We all are, are, are sort of closet amateur politicians that if anybody will ask us, whether at, at our cubicle or uh, hanging around at a party or at a family Thanksgiving dinner, which usually goes bad when you start talking about any of those things, like, like if anybody asks us about what we think, like we are ready to drop our knowledge about what should be going on. Because all of us have some sort of idea of what, is, what society should look like and what's wrong with society that keeps us from being there. We all have sort of our soapbox issues. Soapbox issues. What, what are the things that, that really get you going? What are the things that really get your blood pumping? Where... If, if the topic comes up, you can't help yourself, but you find yourself jumping into the conversation. It's one of those conversations that, like, your girlfriend or spouse, when you're leaving the event that you were at, tells you if they ever bring that up again, you don't say anything. And, and, and when it comes up at conversation, they're, like, nudging you beside you. They, they, like, put their hands in your thigh and start pushing down with their, to just kind of keep you from jumping into it, but you can't really help yourself. We all have those issues that we can't help but jump into because we know what is wrong and we want people to hear what needs to happen in order to fix it. And generally, this is a very big generalization, but generally they sort of fall, those opinions, those big opinions, not just about like football, but about big picture issue, philosophy and politics and policy. They usually fall into two kind of broad categories. One is like we need to get the bad out. And the other broad category is, you know, we just need to love and respect and tolerate each other more. And generally, each of us in this room, depending on how you're put on the hook, you're going to fall on one side of, or the other of that sort of continental divide. Uh, some of us in this room, we're the, we're the do the right thing people. And so for us, when we look at the problems in society around us, the answer to the problem is we've got to get people that will stop doing the bad thing and start doing the right things. We need to, we need to understand like there's a, a code of morals and ethics, and if everybody followed that, things would be better. We need to do better at following this code of ethics, this sort of, sort of morals. And then the other side, you know who you are. You love flowers and you just want people to get along with each other. You just think if we just kind of hold hands and I guess you kind of get what part of, part of the category I fall into, right, by, by how I'm painting the picture. But you just think like if, if we just loved each other better, if we loved each other more, if we tolerated each other's differences more, if we were kinder to each other, if we had a society that was more respectful of each other, then our problems would be fixed. And we see these sort of two kind of general, broad classifications of people sort of fall down in between all kinds of different divides, between business people and artists. You ever seen business people and artists in the same room together and seen them have, try to have a conversation with each other? It's like they're speaking different languages. Because the business people say, hey, 
if you work hard and you do what you got to do, like you can move up in life. And the artist is like, man, let's just love each other and, and let's have ideas and let's paint pictures and play music. And that's a pathway to a better future for us all. And, or you see it in the difference between entrepreneurs and activists. You see the difference between capitalists and socialists. You see the difference between Republicans and Democrats, between conservatives and liberals. You see the difference between those two? Sort of different kind of different kind of worldviews at the base of who we are and how we view life and what's wrong around us and what needs to to happen in order to fix the problems. You see how they, they seem to kind of operate almost to the exclusion of the other. Because the people who say, like, we need to do the right thing, then what do you do with the people that are doing the wrong thing? Well, you have to push them out of society somehow. You have to marginalize them. You have to, you have to throw the bums out. But the other side says, man, we just want to love everybody. And what's, what's right for you is right for you. And it's, what's right for me is right, right for me. And as long as they're not in conflict with each other, then we're okay. They sort of like, kind of, these two worldviews are kind of clash. They seem to operate on two different sets of truth. Number one, the people who want to get the bad out, they want to do the right thing, they say that we're accountable to some higher good for our actions. It may or may not be a God. We're accountable to some higher good for our actions. That must be respected in order for society to flourish. And then the other sort of value says each person's life is valuable. Therefore, we owe it to them to ensure that they are protected and that they can flourish. But wouldn't it be great if we could somehow kind of marry those both together? If we could have some, some sort of new society where we did the right thing and yet we could also love and respect each other at the same time? But it's hard for us to create that kind of society. We're always chasing that kind, of, that kind of place. We're always electing a new person in office who's going to usher that in. But it just kind of, we just keep repeating the same cycle. We move to a new neighborhood where it's nicer, better people. Hoping that that's going to be the place where that kind of fosters this environment. Where my, me and my family are just going to be like the Truman Show. And we're just going to be like waving everybody and smiling each other all the time and the problem is just like the Truman Show it's not real we can't ever really get there and that is why this desire this drive for that new kind of society is why Paul is so worked up when he's writing to the church at Corinth and he's getting on them for these things that they're doing that's wrong as a church that they're failing in. Because see, God came to start, Jesus Christ came to start the church in order to begin the seeds of a new kind of society. The kind of society that you and I have always dreamed and hoped for. A society that can both triumph and herald righteousness, like doing the right thing and Living rights, but yet also be a society that loves and respects each other at the same time. The church is called to be that kind of place. That's why he is so appalled. Because the church has, has perverted this idea of righteousness. 
It's been using a, a moral code to exclude outsiders while ignoring the abuse of the code inside. Look, look at uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 11. But, but now I'm writing to you, before that, I didn't have her read it, but before that he says, I wrote to you in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, like, I didn't, I didn't write to you, like, never associate with anybody that does the wrong thing. People around you who don't know Jesus or outside the church, they're just living the way that they know how to live. You won't be able to live if you try to isolate yourself. And there are some Christians that try to do that, right? They try to create, like, and this is, nothing is, my child goes to Christian school, but we have our own schools, we have our own music, we have our own kind of neighborhoods that we want to live in where other Christians are. I know some Christians who actually started Christian neighborhoods so they could only live with other Christians. We go to our Christian church and we kind of gather around our own people so we don't ever have to be around those people outside who don't follow him. But he says, I'm not saying to do that. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's saying, you have got it backwards. You've, you've viewed righteousness or this kind of code of what the right thing to do is and the right way to live is as a way to, to separate you from people outside so don't ever have to be around them. But he says, but what you've done in that is that you've ignored the unrighteousness, the, the, uh, the own uh, abuse of that code, the own hypocrisy that is inside the church. You've used it as a code to, instead of saying, you use it as a code to differentiate those who are outside of those who are inside, but you've ignored inside this, this abuse, this sort of hypocrisy that's going on inside. He said, you've got it backwards. And then that they have abused not only this idea of righteousness to exclude outsiders while ignoring the abuse of the code inside, but they've abused this idea of love. Look down in verse, um, well, you can already see it. That they already have this idea of love that just, uh, I'm not going to love the outsider, but I'm going to, in the name of love, ignore the sin that's going on in my brother's and sister's life. I'm going to condemn society around me for all the stuff they're doing. They're voting these kind of codes in and they're marrying all kinds of people and they're smoking all kinds of things and they're doing all this and, you know, all the stuff that's around us, but we ignore what's going on in our own hearts and lives. And that's what we talked about last week is that it is easy to discount sin in your own life if you devalue the holiness of God. And that's where it starts. First of all, in your life and my life. Jesus said, don't don't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye if you have a plank in your own eye. Take the plank out of your own eye. Take the two by four out of your own eye before you try to mess with the the sliver that's in your brother. He described this this story of this man who had uh, owed a king. It was something like two, or uh, let's say it was two million dollars. I might have the number wrong. Huge amount of money. Oh, the king, two, that two million dollars. And in that time, if you owed the king a great debt, or if you owed anybody a great debt, first of all, they would do, they would try to sell everything that you had and try to satisfy the debt. And if that didn't satisfy it, they would sell your wife and your kids and either sell you into slavery or then kill you. 
And that was sort of like absolved the debt, right? And so he goes before the king, and the king, he, the king says, you owe me this money. And he didn't have the money to pay back, and he begged the king for forgiveness. And the king said, I forgive you. Your giant debt, go. And the man went, and then one of the king's servants saw him later on, and another man owed him $20. And he, this man who had been forgiven $2 million by the king is threatening the man who owed him 20 bucks. And that's what you and I do when we start looking at people outside of society around us and what they're doing and what they're voting in and what they're talking about and what's going on on Fox News or MSNBC or what the editorial paper of the New York Times is saying. And we get so caught up in that that we are ignoring the sin in our own lives. And then in the name of love... We ignore the sin of our brother and sister. If you saw me driving my car, hurtling myself towards some sort of danger, wouldn't you try to do something to save me? If you saw me living in some sort of action that would endanger my wife or my kids, wouldn't you try to do something to stop it, to stop the abuse? But yet sin is like a cancer that creeps into the life of the believer and creeps into our church. And we ignore the sin in each other's eyes. Not talking about society on the outside, but the sin of each other. And you know why I ignore that sin? Because I don't want to call you out on your sin in love for your safety and the safety of those around you. Because I don't want you to call me out for my sin. Paul is angry for the believers in Corinth that they have perverted this idea of righteousness and love. When he says, I am writing this to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. The wording there is so-called brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. What is he saying? Is he saying that we should be an exclusive group of people who anytime you sin, we throw you out? That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that I have to love you enough and that you have to love me enough. And we have to be serious enough about the holiness of God and, and, the, and to understand that for you as a believer to, to experience joy is to only can only be found not in running after your own sinful, temporary pleasures. It can only be found in knowing and having communion with Jesus Christ. It can only be found in growing in your personal holiness, growing in your relationship with Him, becoming more and more like Him. Happiness is found in holiness. And I have to love you enough and love, we have to together love Jesus Christ enough and love that, love you and your pursuit for joy and happiness enough that we are serious about pushing each other towards holiness, towards righteousness. So much so that if there's one of us in our midst that gets to a point where they're just not listening, where they are unrepentant, where they're hard, their heart is hard and their neck is stiff, we are doing each other a disservice if we just act like everything's okay. 
You know those really unhealthy Thanksgiving dinners? Where everybody is fighting with each other and has been talking about each other all day long. But when you sit down to eat or you gather at your mom's house or your grandma's house, everybody's acting like everything's okay and nobody is mentioning the elephant in the room. And things just get worse that one year to the next year to the next year because nothing is ever dealt with and we become more and more distant from each other and we just show up at Thanksgiving dinner and we hate it the whole time just because that's what we have to do or to keep mom happy. That's what it's like in the church when we live life with each other and we ignore sin in my life and in your life for the sake of peace or the name of something that we call love. It's not real love. It's a weak sauce kind of love. It's something that we, it's a cowardice that we call love. I love my children enough to discipline them when it's necessary. I love my wife enough for her and I to have difficult conversations and for us to stick with each other through the difficult conversations. One of us just doesn't run out and leave the house and be gone forever because we're having a disagreement. We stick through it with each other because we love each other and that's what the church is called to look like. To be a church of righteousness and a church of love at the same time. You see this picture of a, of a church that he's describing that has such a, a high view or should have such a high view of righteousness that a sh- should have such a high view of our common quest. That, Which, by the way, we shouldn't take this for granted. You and I should have a common quest for holiness. Think, think about what Paul was talking about here. He's getting down into the nitty-gritty of each other's business. We call it meddling in each other's lives. But if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life and my life, it covers all of our life. It doesn't just have to do with whether you come to church on Sundays or you have, and you have a quiet time. That's weak sauce. If he is Lord, he is Lord over your and my finances. He's Lord over your and my relationships with our spouse, or our relationships with a girlfriend or boyfriend, or our budding relationship with another person. He's Lord of our friendships. He's Lord of our work. He's Lord of your recreation time. How often do we take that into account? He's Lord of your political views. He's Lord of your entertainment. Do you take that into account? When you cut on the radio or your iPhone or you power up Netflix, do we think about it in our conversations? Recently, some of the guys here at Docs have been hanging out together have been talking about uh, holiness in our own conversations with each other. And that actually happened because if you don't mind, Josh, the intern, brought it up after a time. He's like, hey, I feel like we crossed the line a few times. He's the youngest person in our group. 
I was convicted. We were all convicted. We're having conversations now about how do we pursue holiness with each other's relationships and in our conversations. He's called us to be a new society of righteousness. But he's also called us to be a new society of love. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial, trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the fact that you and I as believers are part of a new kingdom that has begun but is coming. This new kingdom is going to swallow up the old kingdom. This new civilization, this new world is going to swallow up this one. And Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign and all sin and all suffering and all evil will be destroyed and will be cast down. And in that time, you and I will be citizens of this new country. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's saying, why do you, if, if you're believers, because listen, if, you're, if we're believers together, we're a part of a, a group of people. As we start to hang out together and we get to know each other and our tribe here grows, you know, we're going to start to do more than just hang out with each other on Sundays. We're going to have business dealings with each other. It's already happened among some of us here. We're going to be clients of each other. We're going to, we're going to buy and sell cars and houses across each other just because we're around each other. And whenever that happens, because we're humans, there's going to be chances for somebody to be defrauded. There's going to be a chance for some there to be disagreement or misunderstanding or maybe just plain duplicitous that's going to happen between us. And at that time, what is going to happen? Do we... He's saying it is a shameful thing to you. He's getting ready to say to take that outside and have somebody else try the case for you. So if you have such cases, verse 4, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And here's the kicker. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's called us to be a new society of love with each other. That is willing to say, whenever you wrong me, I'm not keeping a tally sheet. This isn't saying there's no lawsuits allowed in life. I'm just saying that how do you view your relationships with your fellow believer? Do you view them as a as a fellow believer, as a brother and sister in Christ? Somebody who, when they suffer, you suffer? He said it would be to, were to be a society that loves each other enough in order to suffer wrong and be defrauded when push comes to shove. 
But then not only is Paul saying that we are called to be a, a new kind of society, that one is, that one is of righteousness and love, but one that brings those together, a new society of both righteousness and love. A society of people that are both righteous or holy and loving. If you think about it, that's the kind of society that we've all been dreaming about. A society where of people who are pursuing righteousness. Righteousness means to, to, to conform to the, the code that's required of us. That, 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 that we live and that we do the right thing. Don't you, don't you wish we lived in a society where you didn't have to lock your door? I'm not saying you don't go home and lock your door. I'm just saying, don't you wish we lived in that kind of society? And that's the kind of society that he's called us to be a part of. A part of people that when we're around each other, we can trust each other. But also a society that is also loving. And Paul is saying, not only is it possible that you and I create a society like that, but that it is necessary because God's own holiness and love and glory is at stake. Because his God's kind of love and God's kind of righteousness is what we should be exhibiting to the world around us when they look inside and they see us in the way we live, the way that we live. But righteousness and love are only joined together in Jesus. Think about that phrase, those two phrases that he asked. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Who does that make us think of? It should make us think of Jesus who came in order to cover our unrighteousness. He came for righteousness' sake. It's his righteousness that covers you and I. You and I were separated from from God and and doomed to uh, eternal damnation apart from him because of our unrighteousness. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a righteous, holy life set apart to God. But then he suffered the wrong that was not owing to him to take the penalty for your sin and my sin. And so how do you and I create a new kind of society that is a society of both righteousness and love that sees those married together that can only happen through the person and the power of Jesus Christ at work in our hearts? Because our pursuit of righteousness is a humble pursuit of righteousness. Because you and I understand as believers that apart from Christ, you and I are doomed. And so no matter what kind of actions I live, what kind of life I've lived, no matter how good a person I am, I have never been good enough. And so I'm never going to get puffed up about my actions because I know who I am and who I was apart from Christ. So I can pursue righteousness in my life. I can can live a life of constant and consistent repentance, which is the key, before Christ. That will keep me humble in a humble, fervent pursuit of righteousness. And yet, I can suffer the wrong that other people do to me. And I can be quick to forgive 
because Christ was quick to forgive me, though it came at great cost. Here's some questions I have and we'll be done this morning. This new kingdom that we're talking about, this kingdom of both, this new society of both righteousness and holiness, righteousness and holiness and love, how deep does that kingdom go in your relationships? In your friendships, in your dating relationships, in your marriage relationships and your parental relationships how deep does it go are there relationships or areas of your life where you are quick to exclude outsiders in the name of righteousness but to overlook sin in your own life or the life of those people who are closest to you for the sake of peace How deep does that kingdom go in your actions? Are there areas in your life that you have sort of a proverbial kind of umbrella up to keep that kingdom from coming in your own, in your business relationships and the way that you deal with certain clients or maybe certain relationships that you have? Sort of your, these are your Christian friends and these are your non-Christian friends and you're one way here and you're another way here. Are you 100% committed to holiness and 100% committed to reconciling all relationships as far as it can possibly be on your end? Are you looking for your gain? Where are you looking for justice? That's a big question. Because what he's saying is that the reason that you and I can should be able to suffer wrong with the people who wrong us and take that is because we know that who the judge is. And we know that the time is coming when he will make all things right. And so I can suffer a short-term loss for the sake of long-term gain. Am I focused on God as the reward? And the rewarder. If you are focusing on the fact that God is the reward, that to have God is the reward, to walk with Him closely and to be growing in my likeness to Him, to have sweet communion with Him is life. If if I'm viewing that, then that creates a new economy. I'm no longer tallying the same things I used to tally. I'm tallying something new. If he is the reward and he is the rewarder, then what the world does it matter if I have to suffer loss? And everything I have to give up in order to pursue that relationship with him, to pursue holiness and righteousness in my life is worth sacrificing. You are my personal focus should be on a personal holiness and that should be with a microscope. I should be looking microscopically in my life at what areas of my life, what attitudes in my life, what actions in my life, what way I'm dealing with the relationships in my life is not a part of that new kingdom. Is, is 
not in line with who God is and what he has called it to be. And doing that without a sense of jealousy. When I, because the tendency is to, for I look around the people around me and they aren't living that kind of life. And they get to do whatever they want to do and they seem to have no repercussions and I view them jealously, right? But if God is reward, there's no jealousy involved in pursuing a personal holiness. But then not only is it a personal holiness, but together we as believers are pursuing that joy together. My outward focus at other believers won't be looking at my temporary happiness or their temporary happiness, but rather our shared eternal joy. I'll be striving for personal holiness and sharing a fight for mutual joy with other believers. Not using righteousness as a as sort of a, a fence that fences the outsiders out and keeps me and my people in, and yet this festering hypocrisy inside. Neither will be a love that just says everything's okay. But it'll say, among us as believers, we are sharing a fight for mutual joy in the holiness of God. Because at the foot of the cross, we learn to fight sin vehemently together and to love others sacrificially. At the foot of the cross, we learn to fight sin vehemently. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was fighting sin. And to love others sacrificially as a part of this new society that he's called us to be a part of. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.